Well, thanks for everyone for coming today. Um, this is a rescheduled event. It was originally supposed to take place in January, but the snowzilla got in the way, and so we pushed it to March. So those of you who've been waiting weeks and weeks eagerly for what we all have to say, I hope, I hope we, uh, we reward your patience and live up to the expectations. Uh, but I wanted to thank, first of all, Cato for having this event, because I think it's an incredibly important topic uh, that actually doesn't get enough discussion in Washington uh, because of, in my view, this is uh, what we've seen over the last 15 years in the countries we're going to talk about um, is, is the future and uh, the future of how the United States wages war and other countries wage war, I think. If you look at a lot of the last 15 years as this grand experiment in secret warfare, I think these countries, Yemen, Pakistan, and Somalia, are in many ways the laboratories for the experiment. And, um, and that has um, good and bad implications, but I think it's, um, it's certainly here to stay. And, I, and I'm particularly glad we have these experts here to talk about the country specifically uh, that they're experts in, and then we'll have a general discussion as well. Because um, one thing that has marked uh, and is universal about all of these places is, is I think how real little transparency there's been about operations that have been carried out, at least U.S. operations in these countries. So, so events like this, while we're not all members of the government, I think that having this discussion certainly helps that uh, 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 goal of transparency. Uh, and then we can push the government to be more transparent as well. So I would, um, I, I will have very, uh, leave my opening remarks to that, um, and we're going to have each speaker talk for about 10 minutes or so, and then uh, I will have a, uh, a little Q&A, and then we're going to open it up to the audience, and we will end precisely at 12.30, and my instructions are to say that uh, there's going to be lunch afterwards um, on the second floor at the, in the Jaeger Conference Center. Uh, so without further ado... Um, we will have, uh, well, first of all, let me introduce the whole panel. Uh, we have um, our Pakistan expert, and I'm sure expert in many other things as well, Moed Youssef, who is director of South Asia programs at the United States Institute of Peace. Um, Charles Schmitz, Schmitz <coughs> professor at Towson University and scholar at the Middle East Institute, will be talking about Yemen. Uh, Bronwyn Bruton, is deputy director of Atlantic Council's Africa Center, will be talking about Somalia and the Horn of Africa and Emma Ashford here at Cato. She's a visiting research fellow defense and, uh, in defense and foreign policy. We'll have some general uh, thoughts as well. So let's start out with Moeth. Good morning, all. Um, thanks, thanks, Mark. Thanks um, to Cato and Emma for, for inviting me to do this. So we're going to talk about Pakistan, but let me congratulate Emma, which I had done in Jan, thinking that we were going to have this event uh, at the time before the snow hit, to say that I'm glad we are doing this. Uh, because if not anything else, this topic does force us to introspect a little bit. Um, and that's not a quality that comes naturally to Washington. So I'm glad, glad that you've pushed us to, to think about this. So let me talk about Pakistan a little bit and this idea of transparency in invisible wars and, and where Pakistan stands. The first thing to understand is that this is a slightly unique case because the U.S. presence, U.S. relationship with Pakistan post 9-11 is directly a function of the U.S. presence and U.S. activity in Afghanistan, which is not, not the case for other uh, 
uh, quote-unquote invisible walls. If you take out Afghanistan uh, from this equation, uh, the role and the relationship with Pakistan changes drastically. Uh, and so you can't, can't really so look at that without that in mind. This also means that psychologically, the US has never been at war in Pakistan. It's never seen itself as being present there uh, physically and, and um, sort of conducting a war business, if you will. Whatever was conducted was conducted through Pakistan. Um, second, the US counterterrorism presence, um, the US strategy in Pakistan, if you will, um, is ultimately a function of the US's deep mistrust in Pakistani intentions when it comes to counterterrorism. That's sort of the driving force of the decisions on what uh, the US role in Pakistan uh, needed to be. And this mistrust, in my view, flows from a very real divergence of interests between the US and Pakistan when it comes to South Asia. Now, both have, both have pretended that this is not about a real divergence and this is just about a misunderstanding, uh, insincerity, uh, the other side not, not seeing uh, the real picture, etc. But quite frankly, this is about Machiavellian politics. This is about US and Pakistan not being able to converge their interests when it came to Afghanistan and the larger South Asian peace. And I'll talk to that um, in, in, a, in a little bit. Finally, I think Pakistan is also unique because it's got nuclear weapons. And so fundamentally, the US options were con constrained by the fact that Pakistan had nuclear weapons, and there was nothing more important than avoiding an implosion of Pakistan. And so this hamstrung US options, US role, US strategy, um, to an extent that I think Washington has not appreciated. So you hear quite a bit in this town, well, the US should be harsher. We haven't done as much as we could. We need to push Pakistan. Quite frankly, if you look at the U.S. policy space, and I'm doing a book, uh, a whole book on this issue of U.S. role in India-Pakistan nuclear crises, what you find is that this worry about nuclear weapons and states with nuclear weapons uh, is very deeply entrenched in the policy psychology. So it's not easy for the U.S. to get up and say, we don't care, we're going to push this to a point and see whether Pakistan implodes or not. So this was a critical um, issue for the U.S. as it approached Pakistan. It never wanted to press too hard. Uh, worrying that the nuclear weapons could sort of get out of control, etc. Now, I would also argue that the U.S. has been much more worried about this than the Pakistanis themselves. And so this has played to Pakistan's advantage in some ways. Uh, but at the end of the day, this was real. And to me, this is one of the biggest reasons the U.S. could not press Pakistan uh, harder. Now, in terms of Afghanistan, it's interesting, if you look at the connection there, uh, there is a timeline issue here. Uh, we didn't all start from the point that we are where we are today, which is the question of Pakistan not doing enough and we wanting uh, Pakistan to do more. Initially, the understanding was that this is going to be a short, quick war. The Taliban are going to be dislodged post 9-11, and then everything will be fine. And there's going to be a nation-building, state-building experiment, and Pakistan will be needed because it's the critical neighbor, but it's not going to be the make or break. And so the initial ask of Pakistan, interestingly, um, is basically to go in and try and capture the Al-Qaeda operators who are crossing over uh, from Afghanistan into Pakistan post 9-11, when the US goes um, and, and sort of uh, launches the military campaign. And neither Pakistan nor the US actually ever recognized, to my mind, how quickly this is going to become an insurgency based in Pakistan and targeting not only Afghanistan, but then offshoots targeting Pakistan. And we're getting to the very scenario that the US was most worried about, which was um, Pakistan not destabilizing to the point that it couldn't be controlled. Um, 
I remember 2002, uh, then uh, Pakistani President um, uh, Parvez Musharraf, who was also a military ruler, um, having a press conference and having this very candid conversation about feeling the pressure from the US to send his troops into FATA. And it was very clear that he did not want to do that. Uh, but his point was, if I don't do it, I've got the superpower after me. If I do this, I'm going to have a backlash within FATA. I'm willing to take the backlash and deal with it later rather than have the US on the wrong side. And that was basically the decision. That also meant that as soon as Pakistan went in and this policy started backfiring, where there was a reaction to the Pakistani military incursion, um, Pakistan very quickly decided that this is not a game it wants to play. And the most interesting part of this is that the US throughout and the world throughout continued to press Pakistan to say, you are still playing footsie with the Taliban. You can't do this good Taliban, bad Taliban business. You got to be clear and go after everybody. And when I used to talk to Pakistani officials, their conclusion was the polar opposite, which was actually the problem is not that we are not using enough force against these people. The problem is we shouldn't have gone in in the first place at your behest. Because that's what's come back to haunt us. So now we're going to pull back, we're going to cut peace deals, and you have the infamous sort of discussion of Pakistan cutting deals with the Taliban and being too soft, etc. But their conclusion was the polar opposite of what the US was. And this tension has remained in this relationship throughout. Um, the double game, if you will, as, as it was called, especially from 2006 onwards when the Taliban start resurging. And it's, you know, it's a debate whether the Pakistani policy made the Taliban resurge or was it the, the diversion to Iraq and, and the misgovernance in Afghanistan that did it. But in any case, the US and Pakistan, this tension has existed to the day. At the same time, it's very interesting. This is a relationship where both sides know that it's a bad marriage. But divorce is simply too expensive to test. Childcare is too expensive here. And so what they do is they end up sticking together, but it's a very bad marriage. Both know they're cheating on each other, but both realize that parting ways is going to be much worse. And so what happens? Every time they sit down to patch up, the conversation is about what they did wrong yesterday rather than about what you need to fix tomorrow. And that, in a nutshell, is the Pakistan-US relationship. You've got a lot of cooperation behind the scenes. And I'll talk about that in a second. And you've got tons of angst uh, that causes both sides to see each other as insincere, as not being sincere to the cause, not doing what they had promised, etc. And you'd hear from both sides, quite honestly, somebody like me who straddles both sides regularly, that the other side lies a lot. They told us they'll do X, but they ended up doing Y. We can't trust them. And my answer to both sides always is, it's not about lying. It's about an incentive to lie. You've created a relationship where if you tell the truth to the other side, the other side is going to be really upset. And so you basically created a very perverse kind of incentive where both sides have continued to promise each other they will do more than they ever wanted to or they ever thought they would. Um, so what was the US role ultimately? This mistrust drove the US policy in Pakistan in, in two or three different ways. First of all, Pakistan and the US cooperated very closely on groups that they didn't have a problem agreeing on. Al-Qaeda, the Uzbek and the Chechen um, Central Asian sort of fighters in Pakistan, and then a number of groups that were targeting Pakistan itself um, after 2005-06. They agreed on that. 
The U.S. got air bases. This is all publicly reported, so I'm not sort of, you know, there's no information here that's not. Uh, the U.S. was granted use of air bases in Pakistan. There were special operations conducted sparingly, uh, some cross-border activity that Pakistan allowed, and then, of course, the drones and the conversation about who chose what when the drones uh, came about. And as far as I found out, and Mark has written about this uh, in his book him himself, but basically there was an understanding on drones which fell apart at some point. And it's very difficult to say what that point was, but Pakistan did agree to allow. There was coordination in the beginning, and then at some point, uh, this conversation became very caustic. Pakistan started pulling back. The U.S. argument is they pulled back because we were targeting people they were still paying footsie with. Pakistan says, no, it's not that. It's a sovereignty issue. And I think the, the, you know, the conversation basically derailed uh, from that point on. Um, as the Pakistani double game, quote unquote, uh, played out, uh, the decision in Washington, I think, was that we simply can't trust this. And Pakistan is important enough because of Afghanistan. The insurgency in Afghanistan, in a lot of ways, is being played out from Pakistan. We need to do what I call the do-it-ourselves approach. So there have to be a number of things that the US now does in counterterrorism, whether the Pakistanis like it or not, because otherwise we won't be able to solve the Afghanistan problem. And there, I think, drone becomes a weapon of choice rather than a weapon of necessity. Now we're talking about 2009, 10 uh, going forward, where the, the, the uh, number of drone attacks spike, etc. Now, there are still a very, uh, very many questions open on this. One, it's not clear whether the Afghan Taliban were ever part of the conversation when it came to uh, sort of the US do-it-ourselves approach. Second, at least as far as I know, one of the puzzles is there are not many names of Haqqani network operators that have been targeted through the drones. And if not, why not, if that was the number one goal? What, what is, and, and I don't have answers for this, but these are puzzles that remain um, unresolved. Let me just say a couple of things about the question of transparency, because this was raised in, 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 in the invite as well. And you know, I am one who sort of argues that transparency net is better than being non-transparent at any point. But in this case, I've really struggled to make a case on how full transparency would have played out. Because the bottom line here was that the Pakistani side made it clear they did not want these deals with the US to be transparent. And their argument was that our people are very much against you. We have like 90% anti-US approval uh, or disapproval in the country based on history, based on various facts. If this comes out that the US and Pakistan are coordinating so closely, it's going to have a serious backlash for Pakistan because the Pakistani Taliban are already building their insurgency on the basis of saying that the Pakistani army is in cahoots with the Americans who are in cahoots with everybody else to take out um, the Taliban in Afghanistan, etc. And I've also told you that the US was hamstrung by the fact that it needed Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan desperately in Afghanistan, supply routes, the G-locks, et cetera. And the nuclear weapons uh, constrained US options as to how much the US could pressure Pakistan. So this combination ultimately meant that the US pulled back every time the Pakistanis pushed and said, no more transparency, we can't do this beyond this point. And I've, I've played this different ways and basically come out with an answer that it was very difficult if you're a policymaker at that point to say, I don't care what the other side is saying, and Pakistan to say, I don't care what the US is saying. Because remember, they ultimately had agreed that divorce was not an option. 
So they had to play this in a way that that they could survive together. And I think the decision, and I'm, I'm, I don't have any um, sort of way to prove this, but the decision basically was public rebuke, private partnership. So you saw all the way till 2012, uh, 11, when, when the relationship really fell apart on Osama bin Laden raid and then the Salala incident where the Pakistani soldiers were killed uh, in an accidental strike by NATO, that you've got this public rhetoric which is anti the other in both countries. And it keeps going and going. But privately, there's a lot of cooperation happening. Now, the contradiction here, quite frankly, was that at the same time, the US was trying very, very hard to win Pakistani hearts and minds. You, all of you remember this conversation about hearts and minds and uh, Ambassador Holbrook being big on that. The contradiction here is, of course, that if, you, if there's a policy of policy or de facto policy of public rebuke, and the Pakistanis are basically standing up and saying every problem we have is because of the US, and the conversation in the US about Pakistan wasn't much different when it came to Afghanistan, how do you win hearts and minds? When the Pakistani stated itself arguing that the US is part of the problem, not the solution, while working closely with the US, the Pakistani minds are going to listen to the Pakistani state, not the US state. And so you had an inherent contradiction in terms of trying to win hearts and minds while actually um, pursuing a policy that was behind closed doors in terms of cooperation on counterterrorism. But I've already qualified this. I struggled to figure out what full transparency would have meant, especially when this kind of narrative was taking place in both countries. I would argue if you had full transparency, Pakistan would have had to cut off the relationship the next day. Um, because the Pakistani public would not have bought that. At the same time, if you had conversations in the US where it said, well, CSF is being given to Pakistan essentially as a rent uh, for more support. Uh, and yes, the accountability is not, not as clear as it should be, etc. I think you would have had serious problems uh, here as well. Let me sum up by saying, uh, or end by saying two things. First, I think all of this conversation is what one has heard in Islamabad and Washington. And this conversation essentially misses the entire point. I started off by saying that there's a real divergence of interest between the US and Pakistan, and that's what underpins the mistrust. That divergence does not come from Afghanistan or the Taliban. That divergence comes from Pakistan's focus, obsession, paranoia, whatever you want to call it, in terms of its relationship with India. And this entire Afghanistan puzzle, the US problem was irreconcilable South Asian policies. I think there was a choice and a right choice. India was the most important player here in South Asia. So the US and India relationship improved. As soon as that happened, Pakistan became very worried and started pursuing a policy in Afghanistan where it felt that the Indians were getting more influence and presence than Pakistan could afford. The US had two other options. Both of them it could not use. One was Iran, which is the other real player in Afghanistan. But because of the US-Iran relationship, that couldn't happen. And the other option US had was to listen to Pakistan's preferences in Afghanistan, push India out, and basically play the game through Pakistan's lens, which for various reasons could not happen. So ultimately, there was a policy in South Asia where India was the most important. Pakistan worried about that. Pakistan played a game in Afghanistan or had a policy in Afghanistan that didn't suit the US. The US reacted not by approaching Pakistan through its preferences, but by doing only one thing, which was pushing Pakistan to do what it was asking and throw a lot of money at the problem through assistance to say, we're giving you so much money, listen to us. But that was never going to work because Pakistan's real issue at heart was about its, its relationship with India. 
And there was no way that we could reconcile that given uh, the US-India relationship. Final point. There was a question about national interest in, in the blurb that you'd sent out, whether this kind of arrangement suits US national interest. And the short answer to that is, I've done a book two years ago on insurgencies and counterinsurgencies in South Asia. And my number one conclusion is, nobody has figured out how to balance kinetics with broader non-kinetic policies while bringing transparency to the equation. There's a lot of conversation about it. No country in the world fighting an insurgency against counterinsurgency, against Islamist forces has figured this out. And the reason for that is that the Islamist narrative seems to be selling much better in Muslim societies than any of us would want it to. And so it's become very difficult for states uh, to ultimately uh, deal with that. And let me just say, as a final cautionary note, that I want to point a finger at my own fraternity. Not, not at K2 at all, at my own fraternity, which is that, quite frankly, for 15 years, the think tank world, where all the experts, including I, sit, has not been able to come up with one innovative solution when it comes to the US-Pakistan relationship. It's basically the same conversation being rejigged from one end or the other, uh, but we just don't, we're out of ideas. It's intellectual bankruptcy. So as much as I'm telling you what the problems are, I'm also found wanting for solutions. Let me end there, thank you. Um, hi, thank you uh, to the Cato Institute for inviting me. Um, uh, when I was asked to come, <clears throat> we were supposed to talk about America's invisible wars, and my first question was, which war? Because uh, there are multiple wars going on in Yemen, and so I have to, I'll, I'll address the two. Uh, the one is the drone campaign against al-Qaeda in Yemen, uh, and the other is the current uh, civil war uh, with the Saudis uh, in, in Yemen. Um, and I think both are... <clears throat> Both are relevant. The United States is involved in, in both of them. And uh, following on Yusuf's uh, remarks, I think uh, the, really the, the heart of the U.S.-Yemeni relationship is one of distrust. Uh, uh, in, in this case, there, there's not much of a government to distrust, but it's, uh, it's distrustful of the capacity of any Yemeni state to carry out uh, what the United States sees as its uh, critical security needs in the, in the region, and therefore the use of, of kinetic force, therefore the use of the, the drones in uh, ungoverned spaces, as they're called. Um, so I'll start with the, the, the war uh, with the Saudis, uh, involving the Saudis. Um, the, the, the war, that, that, that war really is a, a Yemeni civil war. Um, it, it came uh, because the Yemeni government uh, in the transitional period after the fall of Ali Abdullah Saleh um, was incapable, the interim government of, of Hadi uh, with the GCC backing and the international communities, including the United States' backing, was incapable really of governing. Um, they were worried about uh, the future, preparing for elections, uh, putting together a new constitution, a new governing system, but they really were not paying attention much to governing, and Yemen was facing particularly uh, economic crisis, a severe economic crisis due to the decline of oil production. Um, and so uh, people's lives were largely divorced from what was going on at the uh, level of the Yemeni elite. Um, and uh, the, the Houthi, uh, with the former uh, ruler, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, seems to have gone into an alliance 
they both have strong political roots in the country, um, and they made a decision that they were going to uh, um, uh, sort of uh, enhance their role by, by uh, enlarging their uh, role in the country's governance. And eventually, I think uh, the military wing of the Houthi sort of overran their political wing, and they took over the capital, Sana'a, and tried to make an attempt to, to rule the country. This, for the Saudis, was a, a, a red line um, because the Houthis are friendly with the, the Iranians. There's a question of uh, what, what role the Iranians play, actually, in Yemen. It's, uh, I can say that it's a very small role. There's no doubt that the, there's a relationship between the Houthis and the, and the Iranians, but the Iranian role is, is, is quite small. Um, and in terms of uh, both the political support of the Houthi in the country and their capabilities, military capabilities, most of those are domestic rather than, than foreign. Um, but the, the Saudis saw this as a red line. The Saudis don't really recognize Yemen as a foreign country. For them, Yemen is their backyard. Um, and they, they very much want to dominate uh, uh, Yemen. And they don't like anybody. They're even nervous about the US having a large role there. Um, and so the, the, the Saudis, for this, having the Iranians there was, was the end. Uh, of course, there are other reasons, succession in Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Um, but the Saudis went into the war. Um, the, the United States was ambivalent. The Houthi, of course, are very anti-Al-Qaeda. In fact, their primary rhetoric is anti-Takfiri, anti-ISIS, uh, uh, anti-Al-Qaeda. So it looked like a, an alliance of convenience. Uh, and they were aggressively going after Al-Qaeda in places that the Yemeni government had not been able to, in the central region of the country, in, in Behan. Uh, uh, they, they were able to overrun al-Qaeda there that the Yemeni, or the Yemeni government had been incapable of doing so. So it looked like uh, maybe a convenience, uh, an alliance of convenience was growing there. And uh, I think uh, two things. One, the, the fact that the Houthi were very anti-al-Qaeda and <clears throat> also that the, the U.S.'s primary concern in Yemen is state failure. The, the, the U.S. is primarily concerned about ungoverned spaces and, and and uh, organizations working in ungoverned spaces. And so what the United States' priority was, was was rebuilding Yemen on whatever basis. They didn't mind that the Houthis and the Iranians had a large role in there. Uh, they, were, they were more concerned, the U.S. is more concerned about uh, 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 building a, a, an effective state. The Saudis, on the other hand, uh, that wasn't the issue. Uh, the, the Saudis were, were concerned about Iranian influence. And so the Saudis took the military option. Uh, the United States allowed the military option, I think, in the context of the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, yeah, of course, we saw in the, in the article uh, in the Atlantic with President Obama, he, he sees the Saudis quite ambivalently. He's, he's not, uh, he, he questions why the Saudis are, are, are U.S. allies. And he clearly is trying to redraw uh, the map of U.S. interests in the Middle East. And, and part of it is bringing the Iranians in and balancing somewhat the American role between the Iranians and, and uh, <coughs> and the Saudis. Um, but on this one, I think uh, John Kerry, the State Department, uh, carried the word, at least publicly, and they gave very strong backing to the Saudis uh, and, and their war effort. We, we resupplied them. We sold them with $1.3 billion worth of weapons, uh, even after uh, you know, reports have come out of use of cluster bombs and lots of civilian casualties in the bombings. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders have been hit, et cetera, et cetera. But the US is, in the context of the politics of the nuclear deal, sort of giving the Saudis a, a, a green light on this one. Um, the war has been a, a, a disaster for Yemen, a real disaster. Um, it has destroyed a country that was already struggling. Um, it was in the midst of a huge economic crisis. Um, now it's been pushed back 
you know, 20, 30 years. Infrastructure has been absolutely destroyed. And the fabric of society has been ripped apart, where it looks like it's going to be very difficult to put any kind of political settlement back together again. Um, there, is, there is very recently some, some good signs. The Houthi and the Saudis have talked with one another. Um, and though the war is not ending, there's new negotiations. Um, and the Houthis describe these uh, talks as positive and uh, perhaps a step towards building a more comprehensive uh, peace. I think the United States in the back, I think President Obama in particular, but I think uh, uh, other uh, uh, folks here in Washington uh, would very much like to see a political settlement and pushing towards a, a political settlement. Um, uh, and so I think that's, that's kind of where we're headed on that. Um, in terms of the, uh, the war against al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda took advantage of the chaos in Yemen. Um, uh, in, in April of last year, uh, right after the, the Saudis began their uh, air campaign in Yemen, uh, they took over Makulla. Um, which is one of the areas that there's a significant amount of oil. They sold the oil. They made a tremendous amount of money. They have, they have a lot of finances. Uh, they sort of sat in the background in McCullough. They didn't govern directly, but they governed through people because they had a disastrous uh, attempt at governing in 2011 in, in Yemen. Um, and so they seem to be trying new strategies. Um, the, the, the Saudis explicitly said that they would not attack al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda saw itself as fighting the Houthi. The al-Qaeda have uh, announced very publicly that they are going to uh, attack the, the Houthi. Uh, they did so before the war began. Um, and as the war began, uh, uh, they were at the front of the uh, lines uh, against the advancing Salah and Houthi forces as they moved south. So al-Qaeda was trying to benefit from its military uh, capabilities and its leadership of the anti-Houthi uh, campaign. <clears throat> Uh, uh, the Saudis, uh, in that context, it was sort of an enemy of an enemy as a friend, um, and they announced that they would not attack al-Qaeda, or rather that it wasn't an issue for them that al-Qaeda would be dealt with once there was a stable state uh, installed in Sana'a, uh, which was uh, kind of, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, how do I say it, a duplicious answer. Um, uh, however, um, the, the Saudi campaign has not uh, gone as quickly as they thought it would. Um, the, the, they, there is no real military solution to this conflict. Um, and the Hadi, the legitimate government of, of Yemen, Hadi in, sitting in Riyadh, has not been able to govern the spaces that have been liberated from the Houthi forces. And in particular, ISIS and al-Qaeda have taken advantage of it. Um, and so uh, the, the Saudis have begun, uh, begun attacks. There were some attacks in Makullah. There were some attacks in Abiyan and Lahij. There was attacks, air attacks in Aden as well. Um, and so the part of the beginnings of the political uh, renegotiation of the war uh, is related, I think, to a Saudi recognition, one, that the war is not uh, winnable in, in, in militarily, and second, that uh, their, their coalition, their Yemenis, are incapable of governing the spaces that they have, that they control, um, and uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS are going to take advantage of it. Um, so they're recalculating and, and starting to attack al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, within the territories that are, that are supposedly uh, liberated. Um, in terms of the, the drone campaign, um, uh, a few things about it. <clears throat> it has continued uh, uh, since the conflict, and it's been actually, uh, how, do we, how do I say, it? in terms of uh, getting top leadership of al-Qaeda, it has been more successful in the post-conflict period. I was like, 
post beginning of the conflict, in the conflict period, okay? So, so post uh, uh, 2015, in 2015, took out number one and a number of the other top Al-Qaeda leaders uh, inside of, of Yemen. Um, one uh, writer compared it to uh, bees to a honeypot, uh, that, that uh, uh, Mokulla was uh, a safe haven for, for uh, Al-Qaeda. And the leaders seem to have assumed that somehow the, re the U.S. wasn't watching, and um, many of them have been taken out. Uh, in in McCullough, also in Abiyan, there was a top leader that was taken out. Um, so in, in those terms, in terms of taking out top leadership, it's been effective. The thing about the U.S. drone program, which really stepped up again, like in Pakistan after 2009, it's really an Obama policy of, of kinetic force uh, without boots on the ground. Um, <clears throat> uh, it has, it has a, it taken out a, a lot of people. Um, but it has not degraded al-Qaeda's capabilities. Um, and al-Qaeda's capabilities today are its wealth, um, its organizational capacity, and the fact that Yemenis are so poor at this point, and there is no political leadership, that al-Qaeda is fairly easily able to draw people in, draw young people in, because they're willing to give them a gun and a salary and, and maybe a car. And in Yemen today, that's a lot. Um, I've, I've read about um, people from what's called the Mokoma, or the, the, southern, uh, the southern resistance, who uh, herald from kind of a leftist socialist background, um, that the young, they're worried about the young people, because the young people who would normally be with them are going to Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda has financing, whereas the resistance doesn't. The Hadi government doesn't. The Hadi government has no budget. It's dependent upon Saudi Arabia. Um, and so um, uh, Al-Qaeda, in spite of the drone campaign, seems to be able to manage quite well. And so it calls into question how effective uh, the drone campaign has been as a, as a, as a strategy. Um, and it is, it is very much uh, an invisible uh, war in the sense that uh, we don't we don't discuss the drone program. We don't see the drone program being, being discussed at all. The effectiveness of it, the evaluation of it, has, has really not been done um, because people are, are worried about other things, I guess. Thank you. I'm going to exercise my moderator's prerogative by asking, okay. and asking a question while you're still up um, because I think it's, you know, you're explaining this extraordinary situation where, you know, the United States is actually fighting on both sides <laughs> of a war right now in Yemen, or two sides of a many-sided war, right? And just to sort of hit this point a little harder, right, we have this, the long-standing war against al-Qaeda since really 2002, the, first, the very first drone strike outside of Afghanistan didn't happen in Pakistan, it happened in Yemen. Um, and it, uh, that continued, as you said, Obama picked that up, up that conflict against al-Qaeda uh, pretty vigorously. Um, and then, in the last year, the United States supports a war um, uh, going in on the side of al-Qaeda's enemies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And al-Qaeda has been strengthened over this past year. So you have the U.S. basically uh, uh, helping support effectively two different invisible wars. Um, and so um, how do you see going forward that squaring? Or uh, your students ask, what is, our, what is the U.S. policy in Yemen? <laughs> or, uh, how do you explain that? Uh, and, and how do they, uh, w which side is going to win out? Um, well, like I said, there is some movement now uh, in the sense that I think the Saudis have come to the conclusion, one, they can't win their war, that the, that the, the, the more they push the military campaign, the more unstable Yemen is going to become. And I think the, the Saudis finally have recognized that instability is the main enemy and that instability will be exploited by more dangerous enemies than the Houthi. 
Uh, and so they are starting to come to the, to the side of the U.S. in the sense of uh, uh, seeing the primary enemy as the instability and al-Qaeda's ability to, ex to exploit it. And there, as I said, there have been a few attacks. So finally now it's moving around. And I think the, the reason that the, Ameri the, the U.S. allowed it was the relationship with the Saudis, that, that uh, for the State Department, for the traditional uh, 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 sort of uh, perpetrators of, of U.S. Uh, foreign policy, the foreign policy establishment, the Saudis are a key ally. And, and, and they didn't want to, the, nobody has rethought that and, and sort of uh, um, uh, trying to protect it in the context of the nuclear thing uh, with Iran. Um, they, they allowed the Saudis to do this, though it wasn't squaring with U.S. interests at all. Thank you, everyone. I'm very honored to be here as part of this very interesting gathering. And thanks to Cato for organizing it and allowing us especially to step outside of our, um, our normal stovepipes. As an Africanist, I don't often get to participate in a discussion that looks beyond Africa, but it's incredibly useful to do so. Um, in, a, in a brief period of time, I would like very quickly to tell you the story of Somalia in the last 15 years. Uh, and it's a story as our invitation pointed out that is very little understood. It's little talked about in the United States, but it's nevertheless, I think, one of the most terrible tragedies of our time. And I want to start by telling you about Somalia on September 10th, 2001, one day before the terrible terror strikes that changed all of our lives. Somalia in 2001 was not a terrible place. There was an awful breakdown of Somali society in 1991. A military dictatorship that had lasted for many years collapsed. And there was a vicious civil war and a famine that killed hundreds of thousands of people. But by the beginning of this century, all of those things had pretty much ended. Um, the war had played itself out. Everything that could be stolen had been stolen. There were terrible bandit militias that were roaming the country. But for the most part, it was low-level violence, and people were living peaceful lives. Most importantly for the US, there wasn't a lot of radical Islamist activity. There had been in the 90s. It failed horrifically. Al-Qaeda had done its best to import some fighters and some ideologues. They had basically retreated from the country, cursing under their breath about everything from the bugs to the venality of the Somali fighters and the clans. Um, it, it was so terrible for them, basically, that West Point wrote an assessment um, the West Point Counterterrorism Center, one of our most reputable counterterror analytic bodies, saying that at this time, Somalia was inoculated against groups like Al-Qaeda. It was basically a no-go territory for them because their experience in Somalia had been so bad. Nevertheless, on September 12, 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, the US decided that Somalia couldn't be left alone. It had been left alone for over a decade, and it was slowly in the process of repairing itself. But the US had an idea. Because of the Black Hawk Down incident of the 1990s, which we all remember, that Somalis held a particular malice towards Americans. And we also had an idea that any country that lacked a government, and Somalia certainly lacked a government in, in the wake of the collapse of the Siad Bari regime, 
that any, any country that lacked a government would necessarily also be a security vacuum. And any place that had a security vacuum would necessarily become a terrorist safe haven. And so it could not be left alone. And so the US decided to galvanize Somalia's neighbors, Kenya, Ethiopia, and countries further afield to recreate a government for Somalia. And at the time, that probably didn't seem a big deal because there had been 12 previous attempts to create a government for Somalia, all of which had, had failed miserably. But because the US was involved in this attempt, it was taken more seriously by people inside of Somalia. And it immediately evoked a counter-reaction on the ground. When the Somalis heard that the US had recreated a new government, which was based in Nairobi, it wasn't even in Somalia because it was so weak, a group of people started to assassinate anyone involved with that government. And it was assumed immediately with some justice that those people conducting the assassinations must have a radical ideology behind them. And so the US, seeing these assassinations, decided that more, more engagement in Somalia was merited. And the CIA launched an effort. Um, it basically, it recruited a bunch of warlords, notorious warlords, the most hated and despicable people in Somalia, to do its dirty work and to start to capture these people who are conducting these assassinations. These warlords were not subtle about their relationship with the CIA, and they went public, basically, under the banner um, of the Alliance for the Peace and Restoration of Somalia. Basically, they decided to, um, to form a club. <laughs> and the Somali people, seeing that these hated warlords were receiving funding from the CIA, revolted. And they kicked all of the warlords out of Mogadishu. It was, a, it was a public uprising against the CIA, essentially. Something totally unpredictable. Um, but in the wake of, of the destruction of the warlords' hold of Mogadishu, a, a new group arose, and the only group that had any capacity, basically, to serve a governing role. Um, by default, they took control of Somalia. And this was the Union of Islamic Courts. Today, we understand that the Union of Islamic Courts was moderate a grassroots governance movement that possibly could have done some good for Somalia. But at the time, unfortunately, the Bush administration decided that the Union of Islamic Courts was being run secretly by Al-Qaeda. There was no evidence to support that view. It was a mistaken assessment, we understand today. But unfortunately, it encouraged the Bush administration at the time to greenlight an invasion of Somalia by Ethiopia. Somalia's historical enemy. Ethiopia swept into the country. It destroyed the Union of, of Islamic Courts overnight. And unfortunately, it also decided to occupy Mogadishu in order to take this transitional federal government, which had been created in Nairobi by the international community, and to forcibly make it the government of Somalia. It was a terrible mistake. Um, within a year, a new group had arisen to combat this unwanted government. And that group was called Al-Shabaab, a name that probably most of us recognize today as the horrible terrorist organization that has perpetrated the attack on the Westgate Mall in Nairobi, which killed hundreds of people. Um, it has uh, perpetrated the attack on Garissa College University in northern Kenya, also killed over 100 people. Um, many signature terror strikes in Uganda. Uh, it, it's, it's a horrible organization. But it was born as a counter-reaction to the Ethiopian occupation, which again was, the, unfortunately, 
condoned and supported by the United States. Ethiopia was beaten out of Somalia relatively quickly. They were taking an unsustainable amount of casualties, but the US couldn't leave the transitional federal government alone in Mogadishu. And so instead, a African Union peacekeeping mission was launched to take over from the Ethiopian invasion. I hesitate to call this a peacekeeping mission because it wasn't keeping any peace. There wasn't one. And it, it was not designed to protect the population, which is what we generally think about when we think about a peacekeeping force. Instead, it was basically designed to create a cordon around the, the transitional federal government, which was so hated and unpopular that it would have been destroyed if the Somalis had been left alone with it. Um, this peacekeeping force, over the next three years, was, according to local Somali groups, responsible for 95% of civilian casualties in Mogadishu. Al-Shabaab cleverly adopted a strategy of firing at the peacekeeping forces, and they indiscriminately fired back. Well, Al-Shabaab would use um, shotguns or AK-47s. The peacekeeping forces would use mortars. And so the rate of civilian casualties was extremely high. The number of recruits to Al-Shabaab obviously skyrocketed as well. And this produced a bloody stalemate in Somalia that lasted for over three years until 2010. At that point, the stalemate pretty much played itself out. And in July of that year, Al-Shabaab sort of miraculously decided to give up and left the city. There were a lot of hurrahs. Amasam tried very hard to say, hey, you know, we beat, we beat Al-Shabaab out of Mogadishu. But I was around at that time, and I remember that nobody was more surprised than Amasam when Al-Shabaab shouldered its weapons and walked out of the city that day. It's certainly true that Al-Shabaab had been under pressure from Amasam, the peacekeeping forces. But I don't, think there's any, I don't think there's any justice in saying that they were forced out of the city. I think the reality was that Somalia's clans got tired of the bloodshed, and Al-Shabaab thought that it would be better off finding a different strategy which included withdrawing from Mogadishu, as we say, although they left almost 1,000 troops and several training camps active in the city. A terrible thing happened in 2011, which was that there was a famine in Somalia. And that famine was largely blamed on al-Shabaab. And because of it, al-Shabaab lost most of its political support. Amasam also cleverly used the political blow that had been dealt to al-Shabaab um, to follow up with the number of military offensives, which were very successful. At the same time, they had done a lot of learning about the impact of their indiscriminate firing on civilian populations, and they cleaned up their act. So at the end of 2011, it looked like there was a period of hope for Somalia, and things could have gone much better. Unfortunately, the US dealt another death blow to the country at that point. Um, the Kenyan army decided to invade Somalia at the end of that year. And instead of resisting the Kenyan invasion of Somalia, as many experts, myself included, publicly urged the US to do, the United States decided to add the Kenyan forces to the Amazon peacekeeping mission, basically to start bankrolling Kenya's activities in Somalia. The result of that bankrolling of the Kenyan invasion, as was predicted by myself and other people, was that al-Shabaab immediately implanted itself into Kenya and began 
launching small terror attacks inside the capital city of Nairobi. Eventually, that translated into the major signature terror attack on Nairobi, which took place um, at the Westgate Mall. Now, today, we have a situation where a new stalemate is developing. Al-Shabaab is active throughout the East Africa region. Amasom is still inside Somalia, more than, than 20,000 troops, but far, far below the number of troops that would be required to actually stabilize the country. And so once again, we have a situation where Al-Shabaab is acting as a very powerful spoiler so, spoiler, so powerful that it can't be defeated. In the grand scheme of things, of course, it's very weak. The reality is that Somalia remains simply an ungoverned territory, where any group with a small number of fighters and a small amount of money can do a catastrophic amount of harm. But what it means is that there is no solution in sight. We have a situation, essentially, where a country that was more or less, I won't say peaceful, but certainly not at war and certainly not at risk of joining the global jihad, 15 years later, is now a country that has vast swaths of territory controlled by an al-Qaeda affiliate. It has international terror ambitions, and it's seeding itself throughout the entire East Africa region. Essentially, an outcome that you really couldn't imagine a worse outcome, basically, if you sat down and tried to design one. And I would emphasize in the broader context of our discussion that we didn't come here to this place because the U.S. was aggressive in its intervention. Unlike in Pakistan and some other places, the U.S. has not had a heavy military footprint in terms of drone strikes and the like. It's actually been quite restrained. Um, apart from a few early strikes, the U.S. has done its very, very best to avoid civilian casualties in Somalia. When it has attempted to kill terrorists, it has always taken pains to prevent Somalis from being caught up in the bloodshed. It's the only actor in the entire conflict that's done that, as a matter of fact. But nevertheless, the US has provided a cover and um, a legitimization of regional ambitions inside of Somalia so that Kenya and Ethiopia have been allowed to run in and run amok in Somalia, and that's really what has done the damage. I would say the most damning part of this, in my view, is the fact that the United States has absolutely refused to learn any lessons from this effort. And instead of taking a hard look and saying, we've taken a country that could have been a success story in the region and turned it into an incubator for all kinds of horrible terrorist groups. And I would point out that the Islamic State is poised also to make an entry into Somalia at this stage. But instead of saying, you know, this happened because we used the regional powers as our proxies when direct action would have been better. Instead, we have now a new mantra that's emerged from the Obama administration, which has wholeheartedly embraced the Bush administration's mistakes. And that mantra is one of African solutions to African problems, a phrase that you may have heard. And the Bush administration officials are calling this one of their greatest successes, and the Obama administration officials are calling this one of their greatest successes, and essentially saying, we want to take this model that we've used in Somalia, where we've imported Ethiopian and Kenyan and Ugandan peacekeepers, and we want to use it throughout the rest of Africa, which I would say would be an absolutely horrific mistake. Um, I don't see a lot of reasons for optimism as we look forward over the next few years in the Somali conflict. 
I don't think that the government can survive for 10 minutes without the peacekeepers that we continue, we American taxpayers continue to fund. And so unfortunately, I would say that, again, this is really one of the, the lesser known but greatest tragedies on our foreign policy spectrum. Um, so I'd like to thank my co-panelists for some excellent comments on these specific conflicts. I know I learned things. I hope you did too. Um, what I'm going to do is try and make some, some general comments about the topic and talk a little just about how I think this all fits together. Um, and so when I started looking at this topic, the first thing that I tried to do was I said, right, well, okay, I'm going to figure out how many conflicts the U.S. is actually fighting at the moment. Um, and I had some difficulties. It's really hard to tell whether something's a conflict or not. So I asked some of Cato's excellent research interns to help me. We got a bunch of independent assessments. Um, and between four or five of us, we came back with three different numbers for how many conflicts we're engaged in at the moment. Um, so the US is currently fighting between six and nine conflicts around the world. But it depends on your definition of conflict. And as we've heard today from our different panelists, in various countries, the US is using different means um, to project force, to engage in its foreign policy objectives. Some have drone strikes, Pakistan being sort of the classic example. Some involve the use of special operations forces or air power. Um, in addition to the conflicts you heard about today, there's uh, involvement in Nigeria, Cameroon, and the surrounding countries against Boko Haram. There's involvement in Uganda and the Central African Republic, states in that region um, focused on the Lord's Resistance Army. And then obviously there are the bigger conflicts that we do talk about in Iraq and Afghanistan and more recently in Syria. Um, and more broadly... Um, special operations forces uh, from SOCOM are active in 85 countries around the world, um, which is part of why it is hard to tell where the U.S. is engaged in various kinds of conflict. It's difficult to tell whether special operations forces are engaged in combat or not. Um, most of those troops in those 85 countries are engaged, at least nominally, in some form of training, advising, equipment facilitation, or foreign internal defense roles. Um, what former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel described as uh, building stronger partnerships doesn't require larger deployments. Um, but there is a qualitative difference between U.S. military advisors in Thailand um, or in Estonia and the ones that are active in Somalia or in Uganda or today in, in Syria and Iraq. Um, just recently, there was a debate in the media over whether U.S. Um, advisors on the front lines of the conflict there could really be called advisors. Um, and in the situation where U.S. troops are near the front lines of a conflict, it's almost inevitable that they'll see combat, even if that's not their official mission. Um, and again, in recent months, we've also seen some linguistic gymnastics from the White House as it tries to justify sending special operations troops to Syria while saying that this doesn't violate the no boots on the ground promise. Um, I think President Obama himself was actually quoted as saying that when he thinks of boots on the ground, he thinks of an Iraq-style deployment or battalions moving across the desert. And so the deployment of special operations forces there doesn't count. 
Um, but this makes it very difficult to ascertain for the media, for people in the think tank community, and for people just trying to understand these conflicts more generally in America, what's going on around the world. Um, and I would say, people often say economic sanctions have been the tool of first resort for the Obama administration. Well, if that's true, then the choice of second resort has really often been some sort of minimum military option, um, sometimes called the light footprint. Basically, a combination of special operations forces, commando raids, combined with air power or standoff strike capability. And we've used that in a variety of countries around the world. Um, these methods, they were used relatively widely in the fight against Al-Qaeda. I think Mark's book touches on this quite substantially. Um, but they're ramping up again with the growth of ISIS around the world as well. Um, and even just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen reports that the Pentagon is presenting options to the president for how he might respond to ISIS inside Libya. And it's exactly this formulation that we're talking about again. No one's talking about large-scale military deployment. We're talking about small amounts of special operations forces backed by air power. And so, as I think some of our panelists made clear today, there are some benefits to this approach. Um, it can obviously avoid casualties, which is a big concern for the government. The fewer troops uh, in a location, the, the less likely we are to see American casualties. Um, as Mayid pointed out in Pakistan, sometimes a lack of transparency or very small deployments can actually serve to avoid political problems. So any sort of large-scale deployment of troops to Pakistan would have been politically impossible, so the smaller deployment avoids those problems. Um, and they can be useful in sort of decapitation strikes and disrupting terrorist networks, though, again, I think as Charles pointed out in the case of Yemen, those decapitation strikes haven't actually achieved an overarching objective in the long run. Al-Qaeda is still quite strong there. And so um, what I'd like to just conclude by talking about today is the, the downsides of this approach, um, of these sort of conflicts where we commit a, a small amount of troops, we don't really talk about it, we don't really explore the issue. Um, and there are substantial problems here. There's been relatively widespread discussion of the use of drones and the downsides there. But there's not been as much discussion of the broader problem. Um, one big problem is what critics have sometimes described as the Band-Aid problem. So they, these, uh, these raids or these airstrikes, this kind of involvement, often solves small problems, um, but it doesn't solve the underlying long-term issues. So they're effective at achieving tactical goals, but not at actually solving strategic problems in the long run. Um, one of my colleagues, Brad Stapleton, has written on this recently, and he actually writes about how this light footprint was a response by the Obama administration to the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, to Americans' newfound casualty aversion after those conflicts. But it's not at all clear if our involvement in this way will actually achieve our long-term goals. The Obama administration has basically adopted the Bush administration's goals democratization, stability, combating extremism, particularly in the Middle East, but everywhere. But the Obama administration has pursued those goals using more limited tools. Um, and so it's not clear whether those tools are actually going to be effective. A change in strategy itself might be more effective. 
Um, and I think the, one of the most interesting things is the president has actually himself acknowledged this. He gave a speech last year at the National Defense University, and I'll just read you what he said. He said, we cannot use force everywhere that a radical ideology takes root. And in the absence of a strategy that re reduces the wellspring of extremism, a perpetual war through drones or special forces or troop deployments will prove self-defeating and alter our country in troubling ways. And I'm not sure I could sum up the problem any better than the president just, just did. It hasn't stopped him, unfortunately, but it has, uh, he, he does really put the problem well there. Um, and because, as he points out, this is a perpetual war in many different places, it's costly um, and it puts a lot of strain on our special operations forces and their families. The approach is complicated by local factors in various places. It's less visible than large-scale troop deployments, but it still carries the potential for blowback, for unpopularity among the population. And we have to rely on local actors in a lot of these cases. As Bronwyn describes, the uh, warlords in Somalia that the CIA worked with were not nice people. They were probably not the sort of people we should be backing, but we worked with them because that was what was available. Um, more recently, over the last five years in Syria, I think Syria really highlights the inherent problems of finding acceptable actors to work with, of uh, backing them, and then discovering that maybe they didn't share your objectives all along. This kind of approach with uh, minimal military intervention also makes intervention easier. It's uh, cheaper. It's infinitely more tempting to policymakers, but it carries the risk of mission creep or increasing commitments. Uh, so we put troops in harm's way in these deployments. If something happens to them, the pressure to escalate can be quite high. So low risk initially, possible higher risk later on. And then finally, there's a reason why these interventions are, are easier to do. Um, the biggest problem is simply the, the title of this event, the fact that it is less visible. There's little or no public debate on most of these interventions. Often they don't make it into the news. Uh, many Americans might honestly be unaware that the US has been engaged in a long-running conflict in Yemen, for example. Um, there's no congressional debate on most of these issues, which is, is another problem. Many or most of these interventions have been undertaken under the 2001 AUMF, the Authorization to Use Military Force Against Al-Qaeda. Um, but even the Libya intervention in 2011 wasn't presented to Congress for approval. The White House simply said that their supporting role meant it didn't need congressional approval. Um, and even large-scale interventions. Uh, we've conducted more than 10,000 airstrikes against ISIS and that are troops on the ground, but we haven't had a congressional debate on the issue. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine was here at Cato back in August to talk about this issue and to call for a debate on a new AUMF against ISIS. So the lack of debate is, is troubling, um, and the lack of considering these smaller conflicts pre prevents us not only debating whether we should be involved in specific cases, but it also fosters sort of a, a tactical, or what some of my colleagues have called an operational mindset. We focus heavily on tactical considerations and specific conflicts while ignoring larger globe-spanning strategic questions. And so um, I will stop there and return the floor to Mark, um, and I look forward to your questions. Thanks, Emma. That was a, a terrific wrap up of some of the uh, some of the ideas I um, promise we'll get to your question soon I I wanted to just explore a couple points briefly um, before opening it up and um, 
first of all, I wanted to ask Moeed about this transparency issue, which you talked about how some, there was a, for both sides, the U.S. and Pakistan, it, it served their purposes for not being transparent about this secret war. And the question I have is, well, okay, but why not now? Um, the, when you look at it, the really only secret that remains about the drone program uh, is that, uh, official secret, of course, it's not a, uh, not a general secret, is that the CIA does drone strikes in Pakistan. For the most part, everything else has been declassified, and yet that is the, uh, uh, the, the, the beginning of the program in terms of it being used to large scale was in Pakistan, and yet that remains a secret and, and no one can officially discuss. Why now, without so many troops in Afghanistan, why now so many years later, when everybody knows it's a fact, um, is it not harming uh, the credibility of all sides to keep this a secret? So one, Mark, as you know, the, the trajectory of the drone strikes is drastically down. And so in, in some ways you you sort of you know, it's water under the bridge. Uh, more importantly, quite frankly, it is this extra caution when it comes to everything Pakistan. And I have continued to come back to the point, it's a one-point agenda, which is nuclear weapons. At the end of the day, that changes the entire thinking of anybody who's looking at this country. I think it would have been much different without that. Now, the, the point about who does it, I don't think at the end of the day changes anything on the ground at this point, because we are past the point where there was a real serious thought or maybe opportunity, I never believed there was, but maybe an opportunity to use these platforms to essentially change the nature of the war in Afghanistan. That was ultimately the goal. It wasn't about you know, what was happening in Pakistan. I think we are way past that now. It's about reconciliation. It's about trying to find a way to get the Taliban into the system, and the conversation is much different. So at this point, I think the hesitance is, do you really gain anything? by again raising an issue that has been very caustic in Pakistan, deliberately made caustic by Pakistan, uh, and bringing it to another discussion where it says, see, so for the past 10 years, Pakistan was in cahoots it never wanted to acknowledge. I think that's basically the hesitance. They don't see the positive there. And you don't think that there's a, a the Pakistani leaders at this point see a benefit of saying, uh, for, forget the past, going forward, we will work with the U.S. to go after you know, joint uh, the uh, threats that we both face, and um, and we will we will make this this yeah. future program more transparent. I think that's a, that's a very good question. You know, the, I wish I wish in 2002 this conversation would have happened because I think there was another way to do this entire experiment where both sides would have owned up to this and said this is the the necessity. I think there were two. Pakistan, I think that they use this opportunity to basically, on the one hand, say, we cannot own up to this. On the other hand, we'll keep getting whatever goodies. In the U.S., that was seen as the most um, tactically uh, opportune kind of way of doing this. But now, I think it's just not going to happen simply because when you look at the 80-85% anti-U.S. sentiment, whether created real, not real, for a political government in Pakistan that struggles already uh, under you know a, a very imperfect democracy, I don't think they're going to think about that. I want to... Um have one more question that I want to open up to any of the panelists. Um, you don't all have to speak, um, but what I find is a unifying uh, uh, theme of all of your discussions, which is uh, if you look at the three experiences of Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, um, during this post-9-11 period, it is this interest in the United, of the United States in somehow establishing order. Um, they saw 
the U.S. saw, the Bush administration, the United States saw what had happened in Afghanistan of a weak government allowing al-Qaeda to come in um, and allowing for the, the September 11th attacks. And from that experience, they looked and saw anywhere where there was not uh, 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 control or or Charles talked about ungoverned spaces, to go restore order where there is none. In Yemen, in the tribal areas, in Somalia, Bronwyn spoke very eloquently about how um, that uh, then had this boomerang effect. But whether it's to use drones or special operations or proxies, I ask any member of the panel, have we now, in the countries you are expert in, um, is there more instability? If, the, if our goal was stability, is there now more instability 15 years on? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, as I said, in the case of Somalia, I don't think you could design a worse outcome than the one that we've seen. Well, can I just add one? I, I think it's a bit unfair to think or say that anybody in Washington ever thought that these platforms and tools were going to bring the stability that was needed. I think if you really ask people who were deciding this, this was a band-aid. They knew this was a band-aid. The real solution that was being pursued in at least the part of the world that I look at was throwing money at the problem. That was actually the solution. There are tons of money going in saying, this money is going to somehow bring development. People are going to give up the radical ideology. It's going to stabilize. And quite frankly, uh, the book that I did, one of the other conclusions I drew was one policy strategy that has consistently failed is throwing money at the problem. It just doesn't work once the, the area that you're trying to stabilize is so unstable that it's free for all. It doesn't work. So I don't, I don't think they were going for this band-aid as the final solution. But the final solution that was being attempted, not only by the U.S., but by everybody, including the states involved, uh, I think just never worked. And we don't have an alternative. Charles? Uh, yeah, I might add a, a little to it. I think, you know, we went from nation-building, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, to uh, using local partners. Um, and I think with ISIS now, we're shifting back to, to another paradigm with a little bit more uh, boots on the ground. Um, but uh, I would agree very much that it's a Band-Aid. I would, I would uh, agree with Moed in the sense that um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an immediate political need to be hitting at al-Qaeda um, that I think is counterproductive. I've often pointed out... <clears throat> Actually, this book, Chasing Ghosts, I think the authors were here earlier, it also points out that, um, you know, al-Qaeda in Yemen is always seen as the strongest branch, the most dangerous branch of al-Qaeda. Um, but if you look at what they've actually done, it's very little. That they're, they're not, they're, the danger is, is overblown. And I think um, I would say that the, the issue of governed spaces is much more complex than it's being sold. It can't be done with kinetic force, it can't be done by throwing money. It, it has, I think, uh, you have to rely on much more local experience. It has to be much more nuanced, has to be tailored towards a long term, you know, 20, 30 year kind of approach to, to building these things. Uh, and that uh, we, we don't we don't have those kinds of approaches to foreign foreign policy and I think I think you know on the one hand the political necessity of, of see, being seen as hitting al-Qaeda um, and our sort of inability in the foreign policy community to develop long-term and nuanced local solutions uh, is hampering us um, uh, thanks to all and um, for these thoughts we're going to open it up for questions and I think that the with the significance of this panel discussion today, I think, is that, what, as I've sort of contended for a long time, I think what has happened in these three countries in the last 15 years is as much uh, a central part of the history of the post-9-11 period for the U.S. point of view as Iraq or Afghanistan, in part because 
we've sort of looked at this new model of warfare that I think is going to be applied going forward. So that being said, we want to hear what you have to say. Raise your hand. Uh, uh, I guess state your affiliation if you have one. And um, again, keep your questions short. Uh, yes, in the corner. Hi, uh, Pat Spann. Um, I wonder if we could just go down the basis. I, I, I keep hearing or keep... Um, my background was in, I had a master's in international relations. And do we, I, somewhat naively, have the Western model of the nation state uh, on these countries that are basically tribal or clannish? And we're trying, we keep trying over and over again to create um, like a Western European model or Canadian US model. And we don't, is, is it just, is it a fool's, fool's errand that, uh, that these, Parts of the world, Middle East, Africa, are, just don't have the central nation-state model. Uh, it's just it's a, a dream. We're never going to find it or get it. Good question. Uh, who wants to, anyone want to attack that? Uh, well, I can recommend a book, uh, <laughs> fragile, fragile Politics. Uh, it's, it's from uh, 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 Georgetown, Doha. Uh, where the authors, uh, all myself included, all sort of took this issue on, and, and there were quite a few who were arguing that that part of the problem is that we we insist upon seeing a state where, you know, political reality would would not be one. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the 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 existence of the international system of states is a very strong norm. Uh, that you know, uh, in in Yemen, um, though it's quickly approaching Somalia in terms of its uh, uh, regional, uh, you know, disintegration. Um, the idea of a state is still strong, and it plays a, f a strong force domestically still in Yemen, though it is clannish, though it is tribal and whatnot. It, it is a part of the mix. I would add, I would say that we need, that it's going to it's going to remain part of the mix. Anyone else? Uh, yes, in the back. Hi, my name is Shang Yuyan from the Institute for Human Studies. So it's very interesting that um, two blocks away, the APAC conference is going down and nobody talked about Israel. So I just, wonder, um, all, I just want to ask all the panelists, do you think the American commitment to Israel is an invisible war? And what approach should the new U.S. president take to prevent uh, the Israeli-Palestinian Palestinian um, conflict from um, escalating. Thank you. When you say, just so to clarify, when you say, is the U.S. commitment to Israel invisible, or is it, or is that play into what the reaction on the ground to what the you know what the U.S. is doing? The the fact that the U.S. and, and Israel are close allies. I I think the whole package, you know, the financial and military support to Israel, um, just like Secretary Secretary Clinton just said, like this morning that Israel's um, security is non-negotiable. Can you interpret that? You know, um, what, what did she mean by saying that? Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I'll take a stab at that. I mean, I think of, of sort of the, um, the spectrum of interventions that I talked about right at the start of my remarks, um, where I said, you know, well, special ops forces are in 85 countries. If we were to talk about um, equipping, arming, selling weapons to other countries, that number would be a lot higher. Um, I'm not sure I would categorize it, though, as military intervention as we're not fighting any kind of conflict there. We do have ties of that kind, arming and selling weapons to a lot more countries around the world than just the small number of conflicts that we've talked about here today. 
Does the U.S.-Israel ties play in, in the country you guys study? Um, uh, well, yeah, in Yemen, I mean, the Houthi chant is death to Israel, death to America, death to Israel. So it, it plays some role. Um, it is an irritant. You know, I think the United States uh, would be uh, the first, the State Department would be the first to say that they would love to, to solve this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There is no doubt about that, that it's a thorn in the side of U.S. policymakers in the rest of the Middle East. There's, you know, there's, there's no doubt. But I think the, the U.S. policy establishment has been incapable of, of, of doing that. And so uh, it's, it's a stuck, <laughs> no solution. Uh, get the front row. Uh, yes, Mark. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is about your statement that uh, cooperation from Pakistan. Uh, when Musharraf was ruling Pakistan, he was literally on 90 angle with Bush too. That do anything you want to, but let me stay in power. So what America could expect more uh, cooperation from Pakistan? And my question to Yusuf is uh, about uh, Pakistani paranoia or fear. Given that India has opened up many consulates uh, near border to Pakistan, and India, our Indian friend has put Pakistani Balochistan literally on fire, so much that my uh, friend Masti Khan Gandu, uh, he is very hopeful that Pakistani Balochistan would become very soon an independent country. And given Indira Gandhi, after, he after she divided Pakistan into two parts, I mean Bangladesh, she made Bangladesh another country, she attacked indirectly to Winston Churchill by saying that we put the two-nation theory in Indian Ocean. And I don't blame her because Indian Journal was forcing her or pressuring her to take over rest of the Pakistan as well, I mean West Pakistan. So given, and if not only about these leaders, I have many Indian friends and they believe deep down that soon India is going to become part of, uh, Pakistan is going to become part of India. So I mean, People believe so much, our Indian friend, that Pakistan has no justification to exist. So given all this, isn't Pakistani paranoia justifiable about India? Thanks. Right, thank you. Uh, just quickly on the question you asked me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one way you could look at it, um, you know, Musharraf certainly was, uh, took a gamble in his support. Uh, there was there was help, and as I as I've written and, and have said today, you know he did endorse the CIA uh, to begin doing drone operations in Pakistan uh, to uh, in 2004, and that led to hundreds of hundreds of drone strikes. I do think that Musharraf played the card that Moad talked about earlier uh, quite uh, deftly of. Um, sort of saying that um, you know don't push me too hard because the uh, what you might get is chaos and you know the Taliban and the control of the nuclear arsenal. I think that really goaded a lot of people in Washington into not pushing harder. But I think certainly on the face of it, uh, there was support from the Musharraf government to the United States. Um, look, let me let me just say again what I had said when I spoke. Um, to me, the more important issue is not whether the paranoia is paranoia or is justified or it's real or not. What I argue in these things is, quite frankly, perceptions matter much more than reality. And policies are often based on perceptions. And in South Asia, it's rather interesting that the U.S., the problem that we've discussed today was a function of two policy decisions, both right in their own context. One was that India is the most important player in South Asia. Second was that Pakistan is a nuclear power. You can't afford Pakistan's implosion. And these two were inherently contradictory, 
Not because of the US, but because of the nature of South Asia. And they directly played out in a way that Afghanistan was affected because there was a silent, another invisible India-Pakistan proxy war where battle was not with maybe with weapons, but there were other things that were at play and that undermined this operation or this idea or experiment of nation building in Afghanistan. Now, I don't want to say for a second that this is the only reason Afghanistan is where it is. There, were, there are any number of internal problems that have dictated Afghanistan's trajectory. But to me, it is not as important to decide how much of paranoia is paranoia versus justified. The real question is there is a reality. Pakistan feels as you have spoken, India feels as, as the Indians speak, and that combination was undermining Afghanistan. The US had made a decision on India and Pakistan, but could never square the circle on how to approach that in Afghanistan, such that Afghanistan was not harmed. Yeah, a few more questions. Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm Mitzi Wertheim with the Naval Postgraduate School. This is not a part of the world I really understand well, but I guess my question is, if you were advisors to the next president, what would be your suggestion about what the US should do? Uh, by the way, I happen to think governance is the most important problem we haven't got a clue how to deal with, and American public doesn't even understand it's needed. So. All right, well, let's take that individually and sort of uh, uh, try to do it quickly if you can. But Somalia, what should okay. President, well, we won't even say who it might be. What, <laughs> what's the next Probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really difficult question. You know, I've always been a, a fan of the Somali people, and I've always had a lot of confidence in their, um, in their basic capitalist entrepreneurial character. Um, and, and I would have always said that that was a great asset that the U.S. should have exploited, that fundamentally, you know, the Somalis just didn't have an appetite for radicalism. But the last decade of terrible suffering that's been inflicted on Somalia, and I failed to say during my remarks that that, that famine that I mentioned in 2011 is thought to have killed 250,000 people, most of them children under the age of five. One out of every five children under the age of five in Mogadishu is thought to have died, which is a terrible, catastrophic blow to the Somali people. After that, I, I don't have that confidence anymore. I think that if you were to pull the peacekeepers out of Somalia, which certainly needs to take place, um, but I think that if you did, it, it would be an open season. At the same time, I think the government itself is just... A catastrophe. It remains the government in name only. These are, are not serious people, unfortunately, who are um, sitting in that institution. And the basic conversations that need to take place within and among Somalis about how they want their country to be governed have also not taken place. And so there, there's really no good way forward. I think the best thing that we can do is hope that that the scope of the peacekeeping mission can be pulled back, frankly, and that the United States can get better at targeting radicals. And I think, uh, to an earlier comment, I hope better at, at tolerating the kind of chaos that needs to exist in Somalia in the near future. Um, we are certainly too inflexible in the way that we regard these African countries who really are um, not nation states. Charles? One more. I was just going to say, I will basically just say two things to the president. One, you want to resolve Afghanistan 
resolve India and Pakistan. You want to resolve South Asia, resolve India and Pakistan. If India and Pakistan are not resolved, South Asia will remain a conflict-prone region. And so the hands-off approach, to me, doesn't work when it comes to that. And the second thing I'll say, quite frankly, is the two things that do not work against the kind of Islamist radicalism that we are dealing with, at least in the region that I look at, the two things that do not work. One is kinetic force, and second is throwing money at the problem. So I won't be able to give him a solution, but these are the two principal tools that have been used by the world, and they just don't seem to deliver. Let me add just a, a quick note. I think you're right that governance is a key issue, but governance requires uh, politics. It, it requires a political foundation underneath it. And I think that uh, um, we, we need to have more, much more tolerance for chaotic politics and working long-term with political solutions in order to, to arrive at solutions. Uh, one, more, one, one more question. Um, sir, on the aisle there, yes. I'm Gareth, excuse me, Gareth Porter, independent investigative journalist. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate Cato for this panel. It's, it's really uh, certainly one of the best, if not the best, things that I've uh, uh, been able to uh, uh, attend here in D.C. for a long time on, on this whole set of issues. Um, I want to ask the panel to indulge me for a moment uh, in, a, in a thought experiment, which would be to imagine that the United States... Uh, couple of decades ago made a decision that it did not want to be the world's superpower uh, involved in every possible conflict in the world um, and, and chose to stay out of all of the countries that you have talked about today. So, and my question is if you would just uh, use that thought experiment as the basis for this uh, answer, uh, uh, what would be, I mean, would any of the countries that you've talked about be better off or not? Okay, thought-provoking question to, to end this. Uh, where should we start? Here, Yemen. I, I, I can do it quickly. I, I don't think the U.S. involvement has made a whole lot of difference in Yemen, frankly. Um, uh, the U.S. Is, isn't, the, the budget is low, the, the, the degree of involvement, though the, the, the drones are, are, are a big issue in terms of Yemeni politics and the dynamics. It hasn't had a real big. So I would I, su I suspect the, the Yemeni the, the U.S. arrived uh, sort of uh, 90s to Yemen, um, and their footprint has been very light there. I suspect that it wouldn't have changed a whole lot if the U.S. hadn't been there. Well, when you're talking about Pakistan, I assume we're talking about the U.S. never going into Afghanistan either, right? That's a huge part. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I say that because it's a very interesting dynamic where out of all the countries that you look at in terms of major insurgencies, Pakistan is one country where the insurgency was a function of its own bad policies over two decades or whatever, but the trigger of the insurgency was external. So minus 9-11, the trigger may not have been there. The policies were still there. And if you look at the insurgency in Pakistan, at least in my view, one of the biggest problems was that neither the US nor Pakistan had time to create a strategy. So they acted before they knew how this was going to come back to haunt them. And so I think, yes, the trigger, if it wasn't there, if the Afghanistan part wasn't there, absolutely you wouldn't have had an insurgency in 2002 or three. But the policies that created the space for that were already there. So you know, some other trigger, something down the line may have triggered it in any case. But yeah, if, if, if you want to ask about that particular time, yes, I think so. 
Um, it, you know, in the case of Somalia, it's really, it, it's almost um, a perfect case study because Somalia was so isolated and so empty. Um, and because in the 1990s, Al-Qaeda had tried so hard to, to make a go of Somalia um, as a safe haven and failed. That I, I actually think that you can say with some confidence that if Somalia had been left to its own devices, it would have continued to be an empty, uh, unexploited wasteland, effectively. And I, I think that you can very easily make the case that the United States was the the, the driving force in the catastrophe that's unfolded there, that really this was a case where the U.S. took its worst nightmare and turned it into a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, so I don't have a country to engage in a counterfactual about, um, but I do just want to highlight again this this uh, idea about ungoverned spaces and perhaps being more tolerant of chaos. We had a postdoctoral fellow here at Cato last year who had done all of her work in her dissertation and her PhD on why ungoverned spaces are actually governed. She did a lot of field work in the Philippines, and it turns out that actually, even though they don't look like we think of central governments providing supplies to the population, in places like Somalia or in Yemen, there are local structures. They work for the people. And her conclusion was that we should be more tolerant of what looks like chaos to us, but may actually be fine for the people that live there. Well, thank you to everyone for coming, and no doubt you have, uh, there, are, there are clearly more questions out there, but uh, again, there's lunch on the second floor, and uh, th thanks again to all of our panelists.